Welcome, everybody, to TWGTF, or as everybody knows it, from the deck of the Nostromo to a creepy little town called Hobbs End. This is Two White Guys Talking Film. I am, of course, your host, Ben. And I'm Tyler. How are you, sir? You know, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Yeah, yeah. How is anybody right now, you know? I will say I'm better than both the main characters in our movie tonight, if we're rating it off of that. <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely, I can't complain, Yes, is what I'll say. Relatively. Yeah. Yeah, better better than the people in our movies. But before we get to that, we obviously have to touch on the best thing we saw this week. So, Tyler, what was the best thing you saw this week? I uh, finally busted out my Blu-ray edition of the Orson Welles film, his follow-up to Citizen Kane, The Magnificent Ambersons. Um, oh. Yeah. It's like a kind of like a gothic, sleepy little film about a family that like slowly is undone due to the progression of time. And it just kind of, you know, just how it's like un- has its unwavering effects on all of us. O- only son to a rich family in like a New England town. And that's kind of about how like time slowly tramples us. It's a really good film even though it's probably most well-known for how RKO handled it by cutting, like, 40 minutes of the film out while Orson Welles was out of the country and releasing a much less authentic version of what Orson Welles wanted to do with the movie. So it only survives in its, like, 80-minute truncated version, which is still very good. And I recommend if people like Orson Welles or, like, watched Citizen Kane because they heard it was great, that they should definitely give the Magnificent Ambersons a watch because it's just as good. It shows Wells' kind of progression away from what he was doing with Citizen Kane into a much more restrained style of filmmaking. I really loved it. The Criterion Edition is amazing and comes with like five essays and a bunch of uh, supplements, including like the original radio play that Orson Wells adapted from the book source in the 1930s. So yeah. I uh, highly recommend. It's not one I've seen, but I know enough about it. And I know he adapted it from a radio play, which is where he gets a lot of his roots from. As we know, Orson Welles started in the Mercury Theater, and he would go from there to work on like Broadway plays and then eventually into movies. So mm-hmm. it's no wonder that he took something from that and tried to do it. It sounds like after the success of Citizen Kane, they kind of gave him kind of the whatever he wanted to do next and it sounds like that's what he did well the thing is is like citizen kane wasn't successful it was well respected and regarded amongst critics and people who saw it but it was suppressed because it was about the newspaper magnet william randolph hearst and hearst had that movie fucking buried so it didn't make a much of its money back but it was upon release like immediately like oh this guy is very good <laughs> at making movies the guy who signed orson wells like basically like gave him like the three movie deal or like the five movie deal or whatever at RKO was fired during the editing process of the Magnificent Ambersons, which is why the movie kind of got taken away from Wells. Once again, it sounds like his vision being like compromised potentially. It is a theme amongst Orson Welles's work. Even in the one where they're like, you can do whatever you want. They took it away from him. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. yeah. Every movie I think we've talked about of his has been that touch of evil had that problem. Yeah. I mean, recently they've been able to restore a bunch of his movies, but the Magnificent Emersons, because that footage was just burned and was lost, we will never get his idea of what he wanted to make, but, you know, it's still a great movie regardless. 
Wow, really? Yeah, it's still very good. I guess movie. It's not from one of the greatest auteurs of his time, but I watched a movie that is on Netflix right now called The Platform. Have you heard of this or seen this? I I rarely go on Netflix, so I have not heard of this. What is The Platform? It, it's a Dutch movie that has, if people are worried about subtitles, has like a dubbing to it. And it's essentially about an elevator that starts at the top and goes down. And on the elevator is the food for the day. And it's not like they stop, they give you one portion, goes down. The people at the top eat as much as they want for a certain amount of time. And then it goes down to the next level and keeps going and keeps going until it reaches the bottom. It's essentially a horror movie, but it's done with like some really interesting commentary on like the prison industrial complex. Hmm, interesting. I think you would really get into it. It's a very quite literal interpretation of trickle-down economics. Yeah, kind of. That's that's exactly what it is. There's a couple of just badass performances in it, and I don't know who any of them are, but I would highly recommend the platform. Okay. That. How long is it? It's like hour forty. Okay, that's not bad. Sometimes, sometimes people will be like, "Oh yeah, it's just like quick, quick little pot and I'm like, "Well, how long is it? Like two and a half hours?" That's not quick, no matter how you slice it. That is why the whaling has stayed on my watch list for like three years. I don't know the whaling. Uh, it's a South Korean movie, um, and I'm like, oh, I've heard that this is a great horror movie. It's about ghosts, and then like, it's two hours and 40 minutes. I'm like, that is too long. <laughs> See you soon. <laughs> wow, we got through that really quick. Yeah, even with the technical malfunction. Yeah, exactly. Well, lights are going down, and I guess I should go out there, and what, do, what am I dressed as? I mean, you're dressed as like one of the non, what is it, Nostromo? What the hell you pronounce it? The Nostromo yeah. crew? Yeah, one of the Nostromo crew. Uh, so a Hawaiian shirt and basketball shirt. They're all dressed so bizarrely. They have, like, they all have their own flair, but they all have, like, a white shirt, like, cargo pants. Like, the not pants, but, like, the, the like, shorts. Mm-hmm. White socks and, like, boots. They look like camp counselors. Yeah. Kind of. They're just right. like tying their like jacket around their waist. So I'm I'm essentially wearing what they what they wear when they get up. Alright. Oh, it's cold out on the stage. A killer in the house premise with the exception that you can't escape to the outside world. Weaves tension amazingly while also beginning a franchise that would go on for several decades. Ridley Scott directs an all-time ensemble with star making turn from Sigourney Weaver. This is the 1979 film, Alien. Then I'm tasting better, you know what I'm saying? You pound down the stuff like this. Uh-huh. I'd rather be eating something else, but uh, right now I'm sticking to food. Uh, well, you just know you know what it's made of. I know that. I don't want to talk about what it's made of. I'm eating this. What's the matter? The food ain't that bad, baby. You chill for What's wrong? What's wrong? 
This movie does not fail to make me nap every time I watch it. I, n- I know what you mean. It's very sleepy. I don't like that. I like that. But still, I'm just like, uh... You said this movie did not fail to put you to sleep. You seem to have some sort of thing for or against Ridley Scott. What is that about? Because this is like the earliest Ridley Scott we get outside of like one other movie that I've never heard of. I find most of his movies, I'm not going to say all because I have not watched all of them. I find a lot of his movies, especially this and Blade Runner, which are like his two, like two of his big ones, right? Mm -hmm. I can never get into them. Like Blade Runner, I've tried to watch like four times, sometimes like different cuts just to see if they work better. And every time I'm just like, I don't, I can't. I'm just like, I don't feel it. Like I just don't, this is boring. (laughs) <laughs> which sucks because Blade Runner and Alien are both like shit I love I love like sleepy horror movies and sleepy like like sci-fi and cyberpunk and I love the novel Blade Runner is based off of I just like can never get into any of his movies it's just really hard for me I can tell that when he wants to be a very talented director especially with this movie with Blade Runner I think a lot of his most recent movies that I've seen are like The Martian and the most recent one, All the Money in the World. I don't think they're very good. And I think it's mainly because I don't think he cares anymore. I think it's a lot of just like, oh, you know, make a movie to make a movie instead of like something passionate. And I think because he has got a lot of recollection for his movies and his brother, Tony Scott, like is kind of relegated to a Michael Bay knockoff. I think in a lot of people's eyes, I think I kind of have like this like resentment for that a little bit if that makes sense Mm -hmm. because i do love tony scott i think man on fire is amazing i think hunger is also like one of the best movies of late 80s early 90s like vampire revival so i don't know i just i kind of i don't love ridley scott's filmography he has a couple that i like but like most of them i'm just like i don't i can't get into this Okay. That's very fair. You've always been a Tony Scott guy over a Ridley Scott guy. And 
No one's going to fault you on that. I happen to like him. I own a few Ridley Scott movies. I like Blade Runner and Alien, as you said a lot. I own a few others of his. I, I don't think he... When when do you think he loses it as in terms of, like, the passion, I guess, is my question to you. I think he still has passion, but I think it's more of, like, a passion to, like, create the idea rather than, like... <laughs> rather than, like, direct the full movie. Because, like, The Martian and Alien Covenant, what I've seen of it, which is, like, you know, 15 minutes before I turn it off. From the little I've seen from, like, Prometheus, I haven't seen The Counselor, which people... They some people I've, I've read like really stand that and think it's like a most understood masterpiece. I I think he has this desire to like create. I just don't think he has this like the creative director from like his early movies. Um, I just don't think is there because like all the money in the world was uh, boring. <laughs> was like, just like from like a filmmaking standpoint. It was just, like, a lot of, like, put the camera here, have people talk, put the camera here, have people talk. Like, it's just, like, there's not, there doesn't seem to be a drive behind hmm. any of his decisions. How was Kevin um, Spacey in it? I did not see that cut. <laughs> <laughs> You're gone, Spacey. You got Christopher I, Plummer. He's still a director who, like, whenever he comes out with a movie, like, I still, like, kind of, I'm like, well, people are going to talk about it. So I guess they have got to, like, at least give it something and you know you're right he has his ups and his downs and there are times where i don't like a ridley scott movie i think kingdom of heaven is an unbelievably boring film but (laughs) you cannot deny that this movie looks pretty damn good yeah no it's shot really well like i said i think this is a really wonderfully crafted world from like the writing down like i get what people see in it like it's a lightning bolt movie where it's just like oh they got like all of these incredible artists who work on this one movie at the same time. Like, is that's, you know, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that. And I, and I like, I get that. I just find the movie to just kind of, it just doesn't work for me as well as it does for everybody else. And see, for me, it does really work. Like the opening credit, I am in that movie. That movie has me and it has my attention. When you see that word start to come together on the screen and the letters are forming, you're just like, oh, I'm in it. That's space. And they do a really neat trick of showing you just how vast space is. Mm -hmm. And how terrifying it is. They do a really good job of like getting across like it is a vacuum. There is no sound. There is, it is nothingness. It does a good job of like ratcheting up the tension. This time watching it, I was like, why don't I like this? Like, what about it do I just like not respond to? And I think it's just one of those things where I have been so brain poisoned by like other media involving the xenomorph that I just don't find it scary like at all. It's what Bart Simpson said in the first Treehouse of Horror. He goes, oh, yeah. It's kind of like Friday the 13th Part 1. It's pretty tame by today's standards. This movie must have been fucking nightmarish in 1979. It's just by today's standards, we've seen so many other versions of this that frankly are kind of scarier and are more intense. This is like, yeah, that's cute. There's the alien. I mean, yeah, I think, but I think it's also because the alien after the second movie, the xenomorph, becomes kind of a caricature of itself, especially when you start to get into like the crossover with the Predator franchise, where it's yeah. like, the Xenomorph isn't, it's like a thing to be shot at. Like, it's not <laughs> actually scary anymore. Yeah, that's fair. 
And, like, I don't know. There's something about, like, going back to this movie where I'm just like, I can see how this, is like, really works at its, in its time. I can see how it works for other people. There's just, like, something about it. I just, I, it doesn't, it, like, loses me about two, like, not two-thirds of the way in. About, like, in, like, the middle point. We'll, we'll get into it. But there is a part where I, I drop off, like, almost every time I've watched this. And I've broken this movie up into five major scenes. But before we do that, we have to talk about the fact that we are out in space floating along and the people we are with on this journey is the crew of the Nostromo, which is just four jiffy poppers flipped upside down, floating through space on a, it's a weird looking ship. I'm going to say that. I do like that ships like in that, in this world are like, yeah, ships like the ships don't look like ships. It's a mining vessels. It's it's amazing how much this movie has influenced uh, media after it. Cause I was like the first thing I saw, I was like, Oh, it's the dead space ship. Oh, is it? Oh, uh, yeah, because they use like it's a mining vessel, so it's like they're just like let's just make the Nostromo. <laughs> so aboard the Nostromo is I gotta say for a ship that large, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people running that ship. It seems like a not a lot for that. It's a surprisingly sparse crew. I maintain two people should be getting full shares based on that. I was like thinking about it and I was like, no, oh, that, that full shares thing. I really love that. I think that's like an incredible little detail. It's like something that they would be griping about. Also, it also made me realize just like how cheap whaling Yutani is. Cause it's like, you should probably have like 12 people manning this, this like vessel. I mean, I mean, maybe that thing looks enormous. So like, I do not know, but our ship is comprised of eight people. And first up, we have Tom Skerritt as Dallas, who is the captain of the Nostromo. Didn't say anything like that except uh, molecular acid. I, for the longest time, was like, man, I didn't know Chris Christopherson was in this movie. He looks like a broke-ass Chris Christopherson, doesn't he? <laughs> he, looks like, he looks like the people's Chris Christopherson, you know, like generic <laughs> Chris Christopherson. <laughs> the Kmart Chris Christopherson. Exactly, yeah. Like store brand Chris Christopherson. <laughs> Alice vacated this premises a while ago. That's the movie he stars in. <laughs> yeah. A star was born. Blade. No, knife. <laughs> He's a vampire who hunts other vampires. You mean Blade? No, knife. <laughs> Edge. <laughs> well, then we just cast Edge. Let me ask you, do you have any uh, working things with Chris Christopherson? Anything that you find... Are you a big fan, I guess? Of Chris Christopherson? I'm sorry, of Tom Skerritt. I no, I don't I was well, like I don't I like looked up Tom it, Skerritt. Why wasn't it Chris Christopherson? Why wasn't it Chris Christopherson? <laughs> I, I looked up Tom Skerritt and I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And I was still like after looking him up, I was like, I know that name. I just I've never seen him in anything. He's not really in anything like huge after this. Like he, he like he is, but like Let me look him up. I was trying to think like why is he top built? Was he because in something? He was, he was more famous than her at the time. And... Well, uh, I also think it's... Oh, he's also in Top Gun in 86. Well, wait, no, that's... I'm sorry, that's afterwards. Oh, he's in MASH in 1970. Oh, he's in The Dead Zone, which is great. I love The Dead Zone. He's also in Wild Rivers, which is definitely a movie I need to watch. I think the reason that he's built ahead of her isn't just because he was probably a more successful star. It's also because there is a turn later on. Where you're like, I think this main dude, he's going to do it because he's the main guy, right? And then it's just like, yeah. oh, no. <laughs> They're psychoing us. Yeah. So after him, we have Sigourney Weaver as Ellen Ripley, the warrant officer aboard the Nostromo. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! 
I think we've said a lot about Ellen Ripley and Sigourney Weaver in our last one, which was uh, Aliens. She is also the most capable person on this ship. She's like the she's smart the, one. She is the only one following protocol. And she's also the one that like communicates to the people who are lower than everyone else. And is like, no, you deserve your shares. You're right. Like, I agree with you. She's a woman of the people for the people. Yeah. She uh, rules. After, Ripley after kicks that, ass. After yeah, after that, we have a clown skeleton named Veronica Cartwright as Lambert, the Nostromo's navigator. I say that we abandon the ship. We get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here. We take our chances. And... I love her. I hate Veronica Cartwright in this. <sighs> Don't ever put your hands on Ellen Ripley again. <laughs> when she slaps Ellen Ripley, I'm like, I'm like, wow, you are pissed. I don't know. There's just something about, like, her look and, like, her, like, just constantly losing it the entire time. Where I'm just, that, like, very relatable. That slap is not in the theatrical cut. Uh, I don't... I've never seen the theatrical cut. You don't lose a lot. It's actually shorter in the director's cut. I think that slap is added in, and I think he just makes the pacing a little more quick at times. Interesting. After this, we have the half-star stud, Harry Dean Stanton, as Brett, the engineering technician. Whenever he says anything, you say, right, Brett, you know that? Right. Oh, I forgot that the half-star stud was in this. I forgot to give it the half-star. Harry Dean Stanton, this is so good. He's so amazing as the comic relief. Just him saying right, just right. for that one scene, right? <laughs> we gotta throw it in now. John Hurt as Kane, the executive officer. Yeah, oh, I yes. feel dead. Anybody ever tell you you look dead? <laughs> it's weird seeing John Hurt in those things. Like, I expect him to be in the movie longer. I'm like, I'm like, wow, John Hurt was young at one point and still looks old. But yeah, he still looks like he's somehow a senior member of the crew. I want you to take your shirt off, John. Please, please don't ask me to do that. I, I have an odd body. We have Ian Holm as Ash, the ship's science officer. Ash? Any suggestions from you or mother? No, we're still collecting. One of the greats. When we get to talk about his character more, Ian Holm is absolutely killing it at times in this. After that, we have Yafet Kodo as Parker, the chief engineer. Oh, yeah, right. I just forgot something, man. Uh, before we dock, I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to... We deserve full shares, right, right baby? Yeah, that kind of rules. I just love that saying the name. I love watching him act. He's a Bond villain, too. He's also the Bond villain. He's the, maybe the, not the worst, but like the most dodgy Bond villain. He has one of the greatest deaths, though, in a Bond movie. That's true. But also, I'm like, did he need to be a voodoo doctor? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the country was doing well back then. I mean, we could, those weren't the questions we had to ask. It was the early 70s. <laughs> and finally, the num the last crew member, who doesn't really say a lot, but is there, Helen Horton as the voice of Mother, the Nostromo's computer. All right. And that is everyone on this little joyride. They are coming back from a mining thing. They are going through space. They are in hypersleep, and they should be woken up when they arrive back at Earth. However, they are awoken midway through their journey for some reason, and it's because they've gotten essentially a signal. They got a, a distress uh, beacon. It being sent to them, and they go to check it out, and they sit down on a planet, 
and they send out a small crew and that crew comes across a spaceship and that the signal was like the first part that's kind of the waking up they all wake up and they're they're eating and they get the signal and the next part of this of this is the planet and i gotta tell you man the scenes on the planet might be my favorite part yeah i love that opening where they're just like slowly like realizing that like we're like not close to earth <laughs> like why are we awake <laughs> not really like that but you kind of can tell like they're like i feel like we should not have gotten woken up and it's like no there was a stress signal and it's like we're supposed to investigate it and it's like everyone's like man fuck that that's stupid <laughs> I mean, everyone's like, fuck that, who is Yafat Koto and Meridine Stanton. <laughs> Everyone else is like, yeah, whatever, I guess. But they're like, no, no, no. And then, like, what's his name tells him? Well, you're going to forfeit your shares if you if you don't do it. And he goes, he goes, hey, I'm here to help, man. Like, <laughs> Whatever you need. <laughs> Yafat Koto turns around so many times and is just like, no, no, I got you, buddy. <laughs> and they come down on the planet and Lambert, who's Veronica Cartwright's character... Tom Skerritt, who is Dallas, and Kane, played by John Hurt, all go onto the planet, and they find this ship, and it's it's nothing we've ever seen before. I will say, the first time you they, people must have seen this in theaters, they must have said, I'm 90% sure that's a real spaceship. <laughs> they just found a real one. Yeah, I, I guess that's what they did. Oh, government's getting a little lenient on letting spaceships in movies. Cool. <laughs> I do think it's real cool that they built, like, a giant... Like, they basically used, like, a hangar-sized set to build, like, a giant cavernous spaceship and also this is a movie that is designed by hh geiger like he did all of like the like the set decorations he and stuff right designed the look of the aliens and the look of the like that spaceship and like the egg and stuff like that like he <sighs> he also designed the face hugger hr geiger and hr geiger paints a nightmarish picture when they are on that ship if you've never heard of hr geiger and would like to look up uh, what the fuck he's done have fun with your nightmares. H.R. <laughs> Geiger appreciates him some upsetting images. Some, some really, really weird body horror. And speaking of body horror, they're on this ship and they find this guy, which for many years was referred to as the space jockey. And it appears that he's in a chair and something has come out of him from the inside. And they keep searching and then they find all these eggs and... Man, just the minute you see that, you're like, well, something bad's going to happen. As soon as I found the egg, if I was John Hurt, as soon as I saw the eggs, I would I would have turned around. I'd have been like, we need to leave. <laughs> there is life here. It looks menacing. I just would have looked over and I would have said, no, no, you all can go down there. I want I want I want Yafet Koto's other share. And they're like, they're like, he only has one. He goes, give me that one then. Because I'm not going down there. And yeah, Kane unfortunately looks near these eggs and something grabs him and attaches to his face. And it, I guess it looks like a soft shelled crab with like a really long, like stingray tail is the way I would describe it. Yeah. The, the fucked up thing, I think, is that it, I was like thinking about it and I was like, it looks almost designed to perfectly fit the human form. And then I thought about it and I was like, no, I guess it would probably fuck up any other type of like humanoid ish sort of aliens well yeah it would my like whole thing about that is i understand everyone's play here of like rushing him back and i understand like it, it, it does it does all fit together i think it i think it's really neat how it works i don't know how you don't reprimand 
Ian Holmes character once he disobeys the like quarantine protocol. Well, and you say that. So the thing attaches to his face, Dallas and Lambert rush Kane back and they're like, let us in, let us in. And Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character is like, I can't do that. Like you guys need to be in quarantine. The whole thing could infect the ship. And then that little fuckhole science officer, Ash, Ian Holmes, says, no, no, we'll let him in. And he lets him in and bypasses protocol. I will say real quick, I want to point out, very fun to hear while in quarantine, someone say, if you don't follow quarantine procedures, everyone could die. And I was like, cool, 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 cool. Great, 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 great. Great time to be watching this. Oh, there's nothing attached to your girlfriend's face. It's like when I watched The Aviator during like the first week of quarantine. I was like, all right, sweet. We're wearing it. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> so they try to like look at this thing. It's attached to his face. It's broken through the shield even on his helmet when he was outside. Which like, how did they get the helmet off? He cuts it like from the top ah. up and they split it because like it's essentially broken through. And you see that this thing is keeping him alive, but it appears to kind of almost be like using him like a parasite would use someone. Yeah, I'd be like, well, John Hurt, good buddy, we're going to send you into the vacuum space. What? At that moment, I'm just like, obviously. Oh, oh, if this was your call, if you were Dallas, you'd be like, you'd be like, (laughs) pew! I would just be like, we're going to put, we're just going to take a, we're we're just going to, we're just going to burn him. We all agreed. He came at me with a knife. (laughs) Everyone knows he is, he was a zombie. And this was everyone's call. As we, all all, as we all knew, Kane was a hard-drinking man. And Kane one day... with space crazy. We all know this. And I'll have you all sign in blood on this contract that I've made. It just stays there, and they try to remove it at one point, and you find out that what's pumping through this little sucker's veins is molecular acid, essentially. <laughs> I do love the chase to, like, to, like get to, to see where it stops. Yeah. To like get to the bottom of the acid. I'm like, what are you gonna do? You're gonna try and plug it? It's gonna eat through the goddamn hole. That ship has like 75 layers. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, yeah, like unless you're on layer like 76 of like of 80, you might be in trouble. But even then, I'm sure there's sealing protocols. Even then, you could like. I'm pretty sure you could. If I understand space correctly, I'm pretty sure you could seal off floors. Yeah, exactly. That's you should be I'm... able to, right? I know space. This movie brings up a lot of questions because it, it doesn't answer everything, which I think is great. I'm not knocking it, but I do spend a lot of time being like, "Man, what like what would happen if like this happened?" And then like I'm thinking about that while other stuff is happening on screen. One of my favorite shots during that scene actually is when you see the acid dripping down. It's melted through a space boot. I thought that was just particularly cool looking. No, that is cool. Yeah. Yeah, it is weird you don't like this because it is kind of like everything. Well, we're getting to every- it. Yeah. The acid eats through all that stuff, and then they kind of leave just Kane, and they all go, and they'll be like, well, what do we do? Which your pitch, I think, is the best. Shoot him out into space and say, sorry, dude. Like, <laughs> Not to be the devil's advocate here, but by the looks of it, he's clearly dead. So we should put Ash into the brig and shoot this body into space. <laughs> yeah, and th- it comes down to Dallas saying, like, well, science officer has the final call. Ash, what do we do? And Ash's like, well, we're going to keep it here. And it's like, no, no, do not listen to that asshole. Ash should not be there right then. Like, Ash should have been reprimanded for letting them back in. But because it was, like, the ship's commander got let in, of course he's not going to fucking, like, send them to the brig. 
it is a weird game of politics on that ship. Like it is. That, never, yeah. that never gets brought up fully, but it's there. And there's clearly class systems too. He has a lot of good ideas. I will give you that. Credit to Dan O'Bannon for writing one hell of a fucking script. Very true. Ridley so, Scott likes to shit on Dan O'Bannon saying he didn't write any script. I don't believe it. Yeah, no, I, I think Dan O'Bannon did. And you can definitely tell it's at this point that a little time passes and the thing just seems to kind of fall off Kane and Kane wakes up from like this kind of coma thing. A and nap. Seems like Kane wakes up from his nap. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like doesn't seem to have any memory of anything. It's like, well, I had a dream where I was smothered. I would have been, I'd have been like, hmm, sounds rough. And you'd be like, yeah, weird. How you feeling? I would like to ask a question here. Sure. At this point, do you think Ash knows what's happening? Are you asking, is he aware of what this thing is and what it's going to do? Yeah. I think he knows more than he's letting on. Well, and that's a tricky thing to say because of what we know about Ash. I will say I think Ash is kind of playing the long game of seeing where this goes. There's a look Ash gives Kane when they're eating. Mm. It's like watching him. And I, to me, I was just like, fuck, that motherfucker knows what's going to happen. Because I know what's going to happen because I've seen this movie before. But it was like the first time where I was like, oh, that motherfucker knows what's going on. That's an interesting point. So they're all eating and everyone seems to be doing well. Kane's like, I can't wait to get back to Earth, have some real food. And they all are making jokes. And then Kane starts like kind of like coughing. And then they're like, hey, the food's not that bad, LOL. And then all of a sudden... Kane has a little creature coming out of his chest. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Hello, my raccoon gal. Send me a kiss by wire. Baby, my heart's on fire. If you refuse me, honey, you lose me. Then you'll be left alone. Oh, baby, telephone and tell me I'm your own. Check, please. Hello, my darling. Hello, my baby. Hello, my oh, ragtime guy. Fuck you, Mel Brooks. You've ruined Alien forever. <laughs> I laugh so hard when it speeds off. <laughs> when, oh, you mean the- <laughs> when the alien like runs off, I think that's so funny. <laughs> it's great because like Yafa Koto's character grabs something and Ash goes, no, no, do-. I'm like, I'm like, no, no, do it. Yafa Koto, you're the biggest thing this thing is ever going to see until a point. Kill it now. Like, just baseball swing it across the room. Yeah, yeah. Like, all of you, like, hit it across the room, and all of you go over there and just start stepping on it. Like, it may bite you, but it's not going to kill you. There's no way. It's too small. Oh, man. What if that was the movie? What if the movie was an hour and 10 minutes long, and it ends with Yafet Koto swinging a pipe, and they just all stomp on the alien creature, and they're like, man, that was fucked up. And it's just like credits. <laughs> like, no, it's like that. And then, like, like, Ash goes, what have you done, you idiots? And then they all just turn around, and then they all just, like, grab pipes. And Ash goes, what are you doing? And it just goes to black. You just hear the sounds of Ash being beat. The thing runs off, and I don't know why no one bothers to go chase after it. I mean, I would be upset. <laughs> oh, I'd be fucking pissed. I think they're all, it's like with that thing where he's like, I can't comprehend what the fuck just happened. Yeah, because you just saw something burst out of his chest. It looked around at all of you and then just ran up. I'll say this. They do then shoot Kane off into space as like a barrel. I would have taped Ash to him and uh, <laughs> fired, fired his ass off too. But they're all just there and they watch. And now it's time for them to go track this thing down. And I believe it's Bert, Parker, and I think Ripley all go to walk around to try to find it. And yes. they 
they find the cat, Jonesy. Well, they split into twos. That was Lambert and Ash. Split off and do something. God knows what the fuck happens there. But, yeah. The other group find a cat. And they're like, hey, Dean Stanton, go find that cat that you let get away. And bring him back here. That way we don't accidentally try and wrangle the cat again. Yeah, they're using motion trackers. And then he's walking around. He's like, hey, kitty. And, like, the minute he walks away from them, you're like, Harry Dean Stanton is fucking dead. That's a shame. That's a really It really does suck. But, like, as soon as he... I've, like, oh, I've watched a movie before. I know what's going to happen. And then, like, yeah, Xenomorph. The reveal of the Xenomorph is quite impressive. It is cool, but then I'm also like, yeah, well, I've seen, like, 25 of them fight one Predator and lose, so... How, how scary is the Xenomorph? How much time has passed in between when it runs off the table and when Harry Dean Stanton sees it? Maybe like a couple of hours because they, how's it they that, shoot. Because they how's have to tape John Hurt up, right? That, yeah. that takes a while. And then they start the plan, which is like, we have this thing. We have, we have to go get that equipment. It's so big by the time he finds it, if it's that short amount of time. I gotta say it's like two, three hours, maybe. Wow, interesting. So their so their progression is quick. Harry Dean Stanton gets iced, and they all meet back up, and they're like, "Okay, well, shit, we know it's it's moving back and forth this way. It must be going through the air ducts. Let's let's seal off the air ducts." And Tom Skerritt, the brave man that he is, signs up and says, "Hey, I'm gonna go in there, and if anything happens to me, Ripley, you're in charge." And Tom Skerritt goes into the air ducts, and this is maybe the best like directed scene of tension in the movie. Well, before that. You get down to kind of like what, like he starts typing up, like he starts like looking into like the database essentially and like asking mm-hmm. questions. And the questions are like, essentially, the company wants the fucking thing back. They don't care about any of the other people. Well, I yeah, guess you find out that, that a little bit later. But yeah, essentially, it's just like the Nonstrom is like, we want the alien. Because <laughs> we could probably do some cool shit with that. We don't care about this crew so much. So it's at this point they're like Tom Skerritt goes in to try to trap this thing and it doesn't go well. I do love when he flashes the light on the thing. It looks like it's trying to hug him. It's giving the jazz hands. Uh, it is giving the jazz hands. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just rips him asunder. Yeah. And you just hear him screaming over the radio. And Veronica Cartwright seems really broken up about this. Apparently in the script, like deeper into like the backstory, apparently like, on voyages like that, everyone is, like, super polyamorous. Yeah. So, apparently, they're all banging each other. There's only so many people. Which I gotta say, you know, that means Ellen Ripley and Veronica Cartwright got to bang Harry Dean Stanton, so to them I say, good job. <sighs> what was it like to have sex with a human cigarette? <laughs> a human whiskey bottle. It's true. Ripley's now in charge, and she kind of tells everyone, like, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fucking blow that thing up. Ash is like, I don't think we should do that. And she's like, fuck off, Ash. I have control of Mother now. You don't tell me anything. And she finds out that everyone is, like, non-essential on this mission for Mother, that they are willing to risk every one of them to get this creature back. And Ash has known about it this whole time, and Ash tries to silence Ripley about this. Ash, that motherfucker. And why does Ash feel the need to be so deeply committed to the company? Ah, uh, because he is a robot. Who would have seen that coming in 1979? I mean, they hint at it because they're like, well, we had another guy and we did like five missions with him and then they fired him and Ash was reassigned to us the day before we left. So I'm like, I would have been like, well, that's, a, that's a red flag. 
<laughs> and then when Ash is like trying to kill Ripley, I'm like, well, that's a, that, you know, he's becoming, you know, is he Switzerland? Because that's another red flag. When he's sitting and they're before the mission briefing, and Parker's character goes, "You're a seat, Ash," and it's like <laughs> Ash just gets up, and then Ash nearly fucks him up later. So, what was his plan to kill her with the magazine? Just jam it down her throat? Yeah. I mean, they can't stop him. Like, they have a hard time pulling him off because he, again, robot. Yeah, he's got robot strength. But man, when he hits him with that fire extinguisher, Ash kind of goes full mental. <laughs> that's that's Ian Holm acting at his finest right there. That's Yeah, that's the android going into fucking fight or flight mode. It's the line from Futurama. I'll never forget you, Hank. Memory deleted. <laughs> yeah, so they... they take him out of commission and then they set his head up uh, which by the way one of the coolest special effects in my opinion i think the voice is also really kind of carries it we're yeah. deep into the part where like i'm like eh. i don't like it when it becomes kind of like a slasher movie yeah but that's what this movie was like this movie I know, was but, like i like oh, i love the tension at the beginning and then it becomes a slasher movie where the slasher is the alien and i kind of don't I, I, care. I will grant you post ash going down the movie takes a significant dip in terms of, like, how good it is. I think even, like, before that, I think, like, around, like, when Stanton, like, once Hurt, get, like, gives birth to the Xenomorph, I, it's, like, I'm, like, okay. It went from being, like, a great movie to, like, a okay movie. Okay, that's fair. So there's only three of them left, and they got to get off the ship. It's Parker, Lambert, and Ripley, and they've got to get off the ship. And Jonesy, who's somehow still alive. You think, like, the al- outlive them all. Aliens like, aliens like, I'm not eating that. What are you out of your mind? Like, I think, yeah. Well, you think I am, with... Alf? <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a monster. I mean, I am, but I'm not. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a sitcom from the 80s. Get out of here. Just because I'm a bad guy doesn't mean I'm a bad guy. Like, I mean, I, I care about little living things. Look at it. It's so cute. Look at the little kitty. There's another movie where the cat, like, gets into the, the like, little, uh, small little ship and, like, outsmarts the alien. <laughs> We just remake Aliens, but it's the cat who goes back, and it's like, you just have subtitles for it, so like, when it's going, meow, 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 it just says, good, because I blew it out of the goddamn airlock. <laughs> or, or it's just fucking, it's just, uh, uh, what's that Macaulay Culkin movie from the 90s? It's just Home Alone with a cat and a ship. <laughs> with the alien? Yeah. <laughs> you guys give up, or are you thirsty for meow? Uh, so, pink hands. Uh, uh, for some reason, the alien's voiced by Joe Pesci. Hey, you motherfucker. At this point, they're all trying to get off the ship and they're going to blow the ship. It doesn't work out for Parker or Lambert. They they go out hard. And Ripley gets to the escape ship and she gets off and the other ship, the Nostromo, blows off and you think to yourself, okay, it's time to strip down to her underwear and get ready for the long hypersleep. If only that fucking alien hadn't stored aboard. <laughs> stowaway. Goddamn stowaway alien, son of a bitch. And she then proceeds to say, you know what? I'm going to blow it out of the airlock and I will do this by getting in a spacesuit. and me and the cat are going to just do this. And one of the greatest moments of tension, apparently she made up that song that she's singing. Just like she did that to like psych herself into like being that nervous. Like that's one of my favorite pieces of acting for this. This is a star making turn for Sigourney she, Weaver. Wait, she put the cat in the suit, right? I believe so. Okay. Because I was like, well, I was thinking, oh, fuck, what happened to that cat? <laughs> so she proceeds to get into the into the space suit. She opens up the airlock. The alien gets sucked out. It catches the sides of the ship. She then uses a grappling gun to shoot it right through the chest and blow it out into space. 
And you're like, oh, it's over. And then you're like, oh, it's still hanging on out there. Then she turns on the thrusters and burns that son of a bitch. When the alien, like, bounces back and bonks into the ship, it's the fucking funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It's it. I laughed out loud. I oh. rewound it, pointed, watched it again. It just, it Naomi, makes it this Naomi, un- come in here. Come in here. <laughs> it makes just this ungodly thud. It's so funny. And because it's, it's like, like a rubber creature, it bends weird. Oh, God. <laughs> it's so fucking good. She turns the boosters on and it burns Yeah, it. she turns the booster on and that burns it. Because it tries and to then, climb back into the ship. Yeah. And then Ripley gets into her little pod with the cat and they fall off into sleep together. And we pick them up in the next one, which we've already done, Aliens. And I want to ask you, we had our topic this week as Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. Lovecraftian, the alien is the Lovecraftian part. It's just something so unimaginably horrifying, right? That's kind of yeah. what Lovecraftian is. And like, also just like that giant fucking skeleton, the gun. Yeah. <laughs> That's also very Lovecraftian. The like alien coming out of someone's chest, very Lovecraftian. It's just like, what the fuck is that? What was that? Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's definitely steeped in, I would say this is much more of a sci-fi film where Lovecraft was much more of like down to earth and realistic, question mark. I mean, uh, I guess The Mountains of Madness and The Mountains of Madness is more of a science-y, science, science-fiance-ish type movie or book, not movie. But yeah, this definitely has like Lovecraftian themes. I think Geiger's imagery helps bring that out. Like, the xenomorph is, like, this creature that, like, can only come from a nightmare. Even though I don't find it scary, just because, I, like I said, brain poison. You don't find Balaji Badejo uh, terrifying as the alien? Okay, I think because the first, like, alien movies I've watched were, like, the fourth one. Because my parents rented it, and I was, like, seven when I watched it. And, I mean, I don't remember any of it, but I definitely remember it not being very good. <laughs> and, like, Alien vs. Predator being, like, the first, like, my, like, entrance point to the alien, I've always just kind of been like, yeah, it's not scary. I don't see anything. Like, I, I get, like, why people would be scared if I was in that situation, but it's just, like, I don't know. It's just, it doesn't, it's like a pop culture thing now instead of, like had I not known any of it and walked into Alien for the first time, yeah, I would, I would, I would get why you would be like, well, that's fucked up, that thing. You know, yeah. I don't know. It's really hard for me to describe. I just, I don't find the movie that scary. It's yeah, and it's not. Like I said, it's tame by today's standards, but back then, I bet it was amazing. I bet, I bet so too. I also just have a hard time with Lovecraft stuff, which is weird. Why I was like Lovecraftian movies, because I, I don't know. I was, yeah. But I really loved the first, like, hour or so of this. I think this time mm-hmm. I was like, wow, the first hour is, like, really good. It's the it's the back half that I'm just like, eh. So maybe if I watch the theatrical cut, which is apparently a little bit longer, I might enjoy that a little bit more. Because maybe it's paced a little bit better. Hmm. It's so interesting, too, with you saying, like, you like the first hour better. Because usually it's the first hour that takes to make the second hour better. But in this, it almost burns out a little too quick for you and never really recovers. Yeah, like I said, like once the xenomorph like pops out of her, I'm just like, okay. And like the rest of the movie, I'm just like, eh, it's kind of boring. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, I guess that leaves me to ask the question: What would you pair this with? Um, oh well, no! <laughs> oh no, they're back. Those terrible alien knockoffs that he does. Yes, I went through a bunch uh, after watching this because I went down a rabbit hole on the internet and and was like, wow, there's a ton of these. 
So we've talked about uh, the Italian like mockbusters before, and I just want to point out a couple. So there's one in 1980 that's Italian that came out that I want to talk about called Alien Contamination, or just Contamination as it was known everywhere else, which is really bad, but was released through Canon. I want to give a Canon shout out. And then in England, you had Inseminoid, which is also, again, very bad. Don't watch it, but came out in 82. And then there was the other two that I watched, which were Roger Corman produced movies called Galaxy of Terror, which Galaxy of Terror is cool because it stars like Ray Walston, the Mr. Hand from Fast and Ridgemont High. Mr. Um, Hand. It has Zalman King, who went on to direct a bunch of like softcore porn movies. It has Grace Zabriskie from Twin Peaks fame. It also has Robert England, the guy who played Freddy Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this this is a weird movie. A weird, very, very, very weird movie. Is um, it called again? Galaxy of Terror. It's very slimy and very sleazy. And then Corman would produce another alien knockoff using some of the same sets, if you look closely, which I, I actually really loved. I really enjoyed, not loved, uh, called For The Forbidden World, which is a fucking strange movie. But the one I want to talk about and the one I do want to pair this with is there was an Italian movie made that came out like six months after Alien in Italy called Alien 2 on Earth. It's awful. I don't know why it's called Alien 2, because it's not, I mean, I know why, but like it, it has nothing to do with aliens. There, it's like about a group of people who go spelunking and run into an otherworldly life form that like kills everyone. It's fucking... Bug fuck. 60% of the movie is just like people driving in the desert and like beaches. But I didn't know it exists. I know it exists now. I want people to maybe not watch it. I just want people to know that it exists and that in Italy you could kind of do whatever you wanted for a period of time. And uh, 20th Century Fox did try to sue them, but couldn't because they had not filed a patent in Italy before that movie came out. Interesting. Fucking nuts. But yeah, anyway, Alien 2 on Earth, the unofficial sequel to Alien, has literally nothing to do with it. Like, not even, nothing. Doesn't even take place in space. (laughs) There's like a scene where they bowl. Anyway, I I, I like was watching it this afternoon and I was like, I gotta talk about this. This is absolutely stupid. God damn it. Every and you know if we ever do Alien 3, you have to do another one of these. Yeah, I have to find more Alien knockoffs, but yeah, yeah. I remember how when we did Aliens, I, I paired it with Shocking Dark. You are out of your mind. Yeah. I guess we ask now, what would you give it? I think through talking about it, I think I'm going to give it a better rating than I posted on Letterboxd. I'm going to give it three and a half stars. I think that first part, like that first half is just like oh, so good. I think maybe watching it again, I might, I don't know, might appreciate it more. Maybe I'll come around to Alien eventually, but... You know, still keeping it at arm's length. Okay. I'm going to give this four and a half. I think this is one of the great scares that you should see as quickly as you can, especially if you cannot be ruined to what the twist is. Because I got to imagine people just lost their shit when that birth happens. Like, yeah. people just Spoiler didn't know alert. what to do. <laughs> yeah. Ex- well, no, fuck them. This movie came out in 79. I'm not spoiling anything. You know the term alien, you know what happens in alien. Yeah, I think four and a half is where I would give that. So, ugh, lights are coming up and people are like, you know what? Extensive coverage on alien. It deserves it. 
And, you know, it does have its problems. And, man, maybe that first half is just so good that that second half can't hold up. Why did that guy keep listing movies that came out after Alien? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know. <laughs> and the lights are coming down and I'm walking out. What am I wearing? How about you're wearing, you're wearing Stutter Kane's, like, robe attire that he has? A fine end to Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy, a movie within a story inside of an idea. Sam Neill is terrific in this excellent thriller about what is real and what is fiction, an excellent thesis on what is horror itself by Mr. John Carpenter. This is 1994's In the Mouth of Madness. Trent, you are beautiful. Everybody says you got the best nose for a con in the business. But to see it firsthand, I mean to watch your work is incredible. When it wasn't hard, Robbie, the guy's wife liked me. Besides, he was an amateur. It's too easy with amateurs. So you try to figure out who's professional and who isn't. And, uh, that's when it gets fun when you run into a pro. You know, most of my salesmen couldn't sniff out a phony claim if their noses were nailed to it. But you, man, you never miss. What's the miss? You learn to expect the worst in people and you get it. Everyone's looking to play an angle. I'm always there to clean up the mess. I'll tell you what. You stop freelancing. Join my staff. I'll make it worth your while, Trent. Forget it, Robbie. I'm an on man. Nobody pulls my strings. I'm independent. I'm happy. Well, be my man one more time. I'm having quite a difficult mess with our cane. Publishing house? Yeah. It's my biggest account. They just filed a claim. It cost me millions. I want you on this right away. What's the claim? Sutter Kane's missing. Who? Sutter Kane. Do you read Sutter Kane? Lived any good books lately? That's the that's the tagline of this. Of it's this not movie. a not a great tagline. I don't know. I bet back then people were like, "Oh shit, I haven't lived any good books lately." What's the oh, tagline? I... What's the tagline? The Prince of Darkness. I'm curious. Oh god, it's too small for me to read. I'll look that up in my own time. So you took the notes on this one? Uh, yeah, by taking notes, I mean I watched it again. So have you ever? Had you seen this before? Yes, I have seen it, but it's been a while since I've seen it. I'd say it's been at least six months since I've seen it. At least six months? It means six years? No, six months. Like, oh. I haven't... Yeah, I, I, I watched it when we were doing, like, Prince of Darkness oh, the last okay. time we were doing it, and I watched a bunch of his movies. But yeah, I had not seen it, like, since then. For me, it had been, like, a year since I'd seen it, so, like, revisiting it... Like, I've seen it, like, a bunch of times. I used to watch it a bunch in, like, like high school. I do think this might be my favorite Carpenter movie. And I know that says a lot. I just love Sam Neill. I know we're, we're not talking about the, this, the, we're not getting into the nitty gritty yet. I just, I just want to kind of set the groundwork. Mm-hmm. So it starts with Sam Neill in the, like an insane asylum. And there's been like this sort of natural disaster that's happened. They, they don't let you in on. 
and he tells his story to a psychiatrist who comes in and talks to him and asks him about it. Essentially, he's a uh, insurance man who's like very good at his job from like the opening scene, and he gets called in one day. They're they're having lunch and they're like, "We we're gonna go to this book publishing company. They're looking for a writer." And when that happens, a man who has uh, a weird head, I would say, and is in, like, shabby clothing, walks across the street, wielding an axe, and, like, breaks down the the window yep. and tries to kill Sam Neill. Do you read Sutter Kane? In this, like, great voice. Before he gets sent off on this mission to find out if Sutter Kane is dead or not, we see him break this other guy in an insurance case. He's, like, the best at what he does. He loves catching people in a lie. Oh, God, there was a movie that does this where it's, like, I think Chinatown was the one I was trying to think of, where, like, you watch him break down a case before you get sucked into the new one, so you're like, okay, yeah, this guy's good at his job. Yeah. It quickly establishes Sam Neill as a competent person who should be doing this. Exactly. So the guy tries to kill Sam Neill, and the cops blow him away. Thank God for cops back then. They were just around at the right time. Yeah, just shooting those people. The guy had an axe. I'm not going to let you attack the police for this one. Police brutality. <laughs> the guy had an axe. You could have used non-lethal force. The guy had an axe. They shoot him like 12 times, though. Yeah. Guess what? A guy ever comes at me with an axe, I'm going to empty the clip into him. I'm going to reload. I don't care if he hasn't moved since I've reloaded. I'm going to empty another one into him just to be safe. Also, guy looked a little crazy. He did. He had like the weird, like dilated eyes. I was. I just want to break this down a little bit. I think the movie is pretty interesting because of its. Because we'll get into it a little bit more. But because of its, like wraparound, like its narrative, it's kind of like you can't really pull holes in it because it's like, yeah, no, like that characterization would be in a shitty Stephen King novel because they're making fun of shitty Stephen King novels. That is what they're going after. This is a big kind of send up of Stephen King. Yeah. When he breaks down that case, it's like very quickly like, oh yeah, that's a very tropey. Like that is a B movie trope. Yeah. So he's taken to the office of the people who publish Sutter Kane, and Sutter Kane is all the rage. It it, it looks like what would have happened if H.P. Lovecraft had truly blown up. Like if H.P. Lovecraft had been around in the time of Stephen King. Yeah. Kane outsells them all. Yeah. I, I think it was. I don't like her, by the way. I think the line, I think you're not supposed to. I think it's kind of like, oh, she's going to be evil. I think it's kind of, he was supposed to, it was supposed to be Stephen King and Dane Coots were supposed to be mentioned, but I think they had to drop the Coots reference because they make up some guy <laughs> who I've never heard of. Yeah, they do. So he has to go find out if Sutter Kane is actually dead or if this is all just a hoax. And he takes the books home and he starts reading them and, People are telling him, like, people of weak constitution and mental fortitude are having problems with these books. They're causing, like, hysteria. And he starts to kind of observe this. It, they, they go, people, it's, it's like kind of like a wives' tale that people go crazy when they read his books. And then he starts reading his books, and then he starts having, like, a, like a, like a sort of vision, like a waking nightmare. This, like, cop beating up a homeless person, and then, like, looking at him, like, do you want some? It's just great. It's just an absolute fantastic scene. It just keeps like looping back to it. Ugh. Small piece of cinematography I want to point out here. He awakes from the dream of the cop saying you want some too, buddy. And the cop looks horrendous now. Like he looks like super like messed up and like bloated. 
it then cuts to him waking up and sitting next to him on the couch is the cop again. And then he re-wakes again from that dream. It's like he wakes up like twice. What I love is the next time he wakes up when there's no one next to him, the camera pulls out just enough to show you there's nobody there. Mm. Like it's a very small touch, but it's really well done. The guy who worked on this, I looked him up because I was like, man, the cinematography, like the like the widescreen cinematography is very good. And the guy who did it only ever, he also recently passed away, passed away this March. I didn't hear anything about it. But he only like really ever worked with Carpenter, like later Carpenter, like Prince of Darkness on. Mm. And didn't really do much else outside of it. He did the movie Double Dragon is fucking bad uh he also did the movie robocop 3 but his cinematography in this is fantastic yeah it's it's got an interesting feel to it and it feels i I don't know it almost feels like he's aping stephen king movies in a way yes we'll get to that when we get to what i would pair this with oh there you go so he is sent by the publisher of this place, who's played by Charlton Heston, in a real small role. I noticed Charlton Heston does that later on in his life. He just takes really tiny roles. It's a neat little role, because you're not bogged down having to watch Charlton Heston the whole time. And he and this young lady take off to... By the way, that's what I wanted to ask you. How did he figure that out? Figure what out? The stupid where the map is thing. Like where it is on the map? No, like he cuts all those book pieces apart. How did he figure that out? I think, so, it used to be a thing in, like, 90s paperbacks where they would put, like, the map on the front. Like, if it was, like, a fantasy novel or, like, a horror novel, you would get, like, a map on the front page. Like, on one of the first few pages. And I think that that's what he's doing. Ah, okay. Because he uses all the covers. Oh, maybe that's it. Yeah, he uses all the covers and he cuts them apart and then he makes a map out of it. Which I was like... Which I was like, how did you figure out how to do that? And I just took it as like, okay, something possessed him to do it. The book. So, like, when you get to the end, it's very clear. Like, when you watch it, like, a second time, it's like, oh, like, all of this, all of these, like, motivations. It's just because, like, the, the he, that's just what he has to do. Because it's yeah. like, does he actually have free will at, in any of this? Yeah, I've never thought of that, actually, either. And he is sent off on this trip. He says, like, hey, I figured out where he is. We're going to send this girl with you. So they go off, and they start taking this road trip to this place called Hobbs End. And Hobbs End is, like, every Stephen King town come to life, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And they're driving, and they're driving, and they accidentally hit someone who is just this horrifying-looking old woman. No, I thought it was a kid. It's a kid at first, but then it's an old person. Oh. Yeah, that's... What I like is, like, the things are just, like, imperceivable. Yeah. You're just, like, why? Like, everything just keeps, like, shifting. You're almost looking at pages of a book. Like, the thing's just going to keep happening on that page till you till you move exactly. on. Exactly. Yeah. I also think it's really neat. I think that, like, I don't know why, but the, like, the hitting that person scene reminded me of Thinner. I've never seen Thinner still. It's not good. You don't have to see it. But it does, it did remind me of Thinner. So they finally make it to the town and things just seem very strange. They go to the hotel, like the woman who is Kane's publisher or her, his editor says like, all of this is in his books, like that painting over there. They stay at a hotel where the grandmother from Happy Gilmore is checking them in and apparently murdered her husband. You know what she is also from, right? What's that? She's from 
Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. Oh, yeah. That's and right. a couple other David Lynch things. I think also Blue Velvet. She plays the, like, grandma. That's right. No, she plays the aunt, Aunt Edna. I love she you, plays Aunt Edna. You're going you're gonna to get it. So they're kind of, like, at the mercy of this place. They're looking around. They're trying to figure. He's trying to prove this is all a stunt. Mm-hmm. And she starts to slowly go nuts. She starts to... Julie Carmen as Linda, who I, rec- I was like, why do I recognize her? I just looked it up. She's in the movie Gloria, the John Cassavetes movie, which makes sense. That is a place I'd recognize someone from. She slowly starts to lose it quicker. I love the scene where they get into Hobbs End, and it goes from night to day, and <laughs> yes. he's asleep. And he's just like, well, I must have slept through the whole thing. <laughs> And you're and before that she sees herself driving on on clouds and you're just like, oh no, things have gone. Well, that's the real question. Is she real? Is anyone real? I mm, think that's true. How much of this book is already predetermined? How much of it, like the whole question is like, is there free will? What is it like to live in front of an uncaring god? Like, it's these very giant, heady questions in this, like, kind of like a pop-boiler horror movie. It's at this point we come across Sutter Kane, and he's just there writing, and you start to get the... It's kind of like the midpoint of the movie. You start to real ask the question of, like, well, is Sam Neill actually there to investigate him, or is Sam Neill part of this story that he's writing? Because the whole time in the background, they're saying, like, all of Sutter Kane's stuff is wildly popular, the next book in the mouth of madness has been waiting to be like presented for like a month or so. People are like fiendishly waiting for it. And this is the book that everyone's worried. Like that could be the, the end, I guess it's supposed to be his last novel. He's like announced it. They don't know if he's lived or died. It was supposed to be turned in like two months ago. They have already like scheduled it for release. It's supposed to be out in like a couple of months. And they're sending him to get the manuscript so that they can start, like, or to see if he's, like, alive, even. And he's uh, alive, and it's now up to Samuel to kind of try to escape Hobbs. And by the way, this movie's very short. Yeah, I remember it being, like, almost two hours long. It is not. It is a tight 95 minutes. It's really quick. And I was sitting there, and I'm like, man, they're really booking through this. And I almost feel that's kind of a shame. I feel like it deserves a little more time to kind of, like, breathe, I guess. I remember it being like a slow burn movie and it's it's not at all. It, no. it moves so quickly and I think that's like to the benefit in my opinion. I just love how in and out it is. I just it when it starts ratcheting up it's like it's like a snowball at the end of the hill, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's just rolling down after you. What's your favorite horrifying thing in Hobbs End? When he's in the bar, he's like trying to look he's like looking for a way out. And the guy comes in, one of the, like, townspeople, and he's, like, all fucked up. He doesn't look good, and he's got a shotgun, and he sits down. And before he shoots himself, he says, I don't want to kill myself, but Kane wrote me this way. That's horrifying. Like, that is... Yeah. I just, I, like, thought, like, just the thought of that. <laughs> you, so have, you, have, you have no free will. Like Exactly. And the person who is, like, creating all of this is a monster. Yeah, it's very true. For me, it's that painting that just keeps changing and getting more horrifying. That's so good. I just also love how much detail Hobbs End gets and how Mm -hmm. you can kind of feel like, wow, this is a really fucked up place. Because, like, 
that old lady who like takes care of the front of house when he's like can you stop smoking it bothers my husband and he's like i well, I don't see your husband around here and then he puts the cigarette out and then it cuts to like hit he's like handcuffed to her leg oh my god and she's kicking him too yeah oh, it's so good such a good gag it is and he gets on a bus he eventually gets out and Actually, he keeps going back and forth because, like, he either hits that person on the bike or he comes into town with all the angry mob. That's a cool cut. You know who played that paper boy? Who's that? Uh, when he's, like, leaving, and he, like, yells at the paper boy. He goes, you ever heard of Hobbs End? Yeah. And, like, the paper boy's like, no, that is uh, Hayden Christensen. Is that Hayden Christensen? Yeah. Old Darth Vader himself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Anakin. He's not, he's not good in that role. So... After he sees Anakin, he gets on a bus and he starts to have like really nightmarish dreams and he keeps waking up. It's hard to tell when he's waking up and when he's going to sleep. Yeah, it is the Lovecraft thing of like the person has gone mad. He really has. And he comes back and he says, he goes, Kane is Kane is alive. Blah, blah, blah. And they go, we sent you to do that like six months ago. You like the book is out. Yeah, the book is out. <laughs> and he's like, he goes, you got to stop it. You got to you got to you got to make it not be. And you find out that people are just going insane from reading this book. And even Sam Neill's not opposed to that because Sam Neill waits outside of a, of a bookstore for someone to come out and then he axes him. Oh my God. I forgot that he straight up. I forgot when I was watching it, the second time, I was like, how does he get to the, and then he's like, he's, does he say, do you read Kane? Yeah. He, he says, says, do you read? Yeah. I think he says, do you, he goes, he goes, do you read Kane? And he goes, yeah. He goes, you enjoying it? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, you should. And like, I think he axes him. And then we come back to where the beginning of the movie is. He's his ass is being dragged into mental hospital. By the way, gives a guard a quick kick in the balls like early in the movie, and he gets dragged into a mental institution. And this guy brings it back to where he was telling the story of how he got there. That's so funny. I think I'd Sam Neil, crazy Sam Neil. I think. He's one of the best yeah. guys with just best actors at like guy who has absolutely lost it. It's because we don't expect him to do it. So when he does, we're always kind of surprised by it. So known for like keeping it together and being so mannered. But like this movie and another movie, Possession, he plays a guy who has completely lost his marbles so well. He really has, which is weird because like there's a movie where he's being chased by dinosaurs and he's not as erratic as he is in these two movies. Yeah, no, he's super composed. And Sam Neill is in this mental institution. All of a sudden, it seems like everything shuts down in the mental institution. He gets out because the window to his cell is broken. And you can just see that the world's kind of gone to hell because even if people didn't read the book, the movie came out that same month. And the turnaround of that movie is nuts. I, I got to say, they must have had Clint Eastwood shooting that movie because like it goes from being a book and then like well, they're like yeah there's a movie coming out in two months it was the book was published three months ago and i'm like so you're saying it took five months to shoot that movie you're like this must have been a really short movie tight 95 minutes i'm betting and he's wandering around the streets and this is kind of the last image of the movie it's him going into the theater that says in the mouth of madness does it say starring john trent or does it say starring sam neill it says john trent okay I know and it says sits, a, car, a John Carpenter film. And he sits down in the theater with a bucket of popcorn. I love that he got popcorn. I think that's a nice touch. It is a cute touch. And you see essentially the movie that we just saw playing out on screen. And Sam Neill just starts to maniacally laugh in the theater as he watches it. And then it just goes to black. So good. 
it's an odd movie because nothing really happens in this movie, and yet everything happens in this movie. So much happens and goes wrong. Um, like, we didn't talk about the scene where, like, Starter Kane's like, yeah, I'm basically, like, holding back the Lovecraftian nightmares from entering our world. And, like, maybe when this book was released, maybe they'll show up. And then, like, he opens, like, a tear in the universe. And it's like a book page. And Samuel looks into it. And you just hear the noises of some other being. And you don't see it. It's so good. It is. <sighs> Do you... rules. Do you know what the original ending of this was? No. So, take a look at the poster. Oh, does he become a book? No, the whole world gets sucked into a book, apparently. Ooh. That, I think, visually, is less interesting than the ending that we do get. Yeah, I agree. I think that's kind of how I feel about it, too. It's just a very bizarre and, like, kind of a hopeless movie. What's so weird is this is the third and final film of John Carpenter's Apocalypse trilogy. And you go from a movie, like, all three of them, just bummer endings. But I feel like as the movies go along... No, they... no, no. Two, two friends in the thing <laughs> learn to work out their differences and they're sharing a drink at the end. Yes. Where, okay. Where's the bummer? Point it out to me. And in the, the movie, and in the movie, Prince of Darkness. I don't remember how Prince of Darkness actually. I, Prince of Darkness has a fantastic ending. Prince of Darkness. Oh, the, oh his girlfriend the, gets the, sucked the, into the other. In the mirror. That's right. He gets sucked into the mirror, and then it's, he wakes up, stares in the mirror, and then he wakes up again, and then stares up and stares in the mirror. Up and realized he has to move on, and he's a single successful guy. Happy ending. Like yes. that's 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 what I took away from it. I think this movie might actually have the bleakest ending. I think it does, too, because there's not even a hope of resolution. Like, in The Thing, let's say that, like, whoever's not The Thing kills the other one and survives. That's one thing. In Prince of Darkness, like, he maybe figures out a way to go into the mirror and get her back in a sequel. Sure. This one, there's no real happiness. He's kind of the last guy on screen. He is forced to live this out in, like, essentially, like, when you, you know, when you, like, get trapped in, like, where, like, one mirror like a mirror from across from another mirror and you get trapped in like this like weird Ouroboros of like timelines looping back and forth. He's just going to be forced to live this forever because he's a character. It's great. It's so good. It's an unfortunate existence to be sure. By the way, the tagline for Prince of Darkness, before man walked the earth, it slept for centuries. It is evil. It is real. It is awakening. (sighs) That's actually pretty good. It's a shame that Prince of Darkness and this movie did not do very well at the box office. I think he's a guy who makes movies that are a little too ahead of their time when he makes them, and yet still garners an audience. Yeah, that's true. I feel like this is the last really great movie of John Carpenter's. Even though I like, I kind of like like Village of the Dam, and I kind of like Escape from L.A., but I think this is, in my opinion, like the last like great Carpenter movie. I I think this is certainly the one where he really feels uninhibited, and he's not getting a lot of notes from people. That's also true. Yeah, Village of the Damned, even though it's fun and Escape from L.A. are fun, you can tell that those movies are heavily watched by someone else. Mm-hmm. And then Vampires and Ghosts of Mars are definitely movies that exist. I own both of them. I've never seen either of them. Vampires make sense if you look at it like a campy B-movie, kind of in the van of like an escape from New York or L.A. Ghosts of Mars is a fucking mess. I remember Triumph the Insult Comic Dog interviewing um, John Bon Jovi and going, oh, a movie that requires a role for you to suck in. (laughs) 
But yeah, Carpenter, man, I, I want to see more from him. I wish he had one more movie in him. He's still alive. God damn, the dudes. I, yeah, I just don't think it's ever, you know. That makes, I know. I don't, yeah. I think he's I think, fine putting out music. His music rules. It does. Yeah, I don't think he needs to make anything. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. He's he's 72 years old. He's one. I think he's my favorite working horror director. And I have not seen all of his stuff. I do want to correct that and watch all of it. But this certainly ranks up there amongst his stuff. I love his Apocalypse trilogy. I'm glad we finished it off. I'm glad we finally talked about the last one. And I guess it leaves me to ask the question, Tyler, because you seem excited. What would you pair this with? I would pair this with The Dark Half. What is The Dark Half? Dark Half is a George Romero adaptation of the Stephen King novel of the same name. It's about a writer who slowly begins to suspect that there is a version of himself going out and committing murders. It's not a great movie, but it's pretty good. And it kind of like fits in the like in the mouth of madness style of like books becoming real. (laughs) It sounds like a movie on paper that like they immediately just approved. It is. It was, I mean, it's in that run post like Carrie and a couple other of his adaptations that did big at the box office where it was just like, just do whatever, you know, like, when you get like shit like needful things and Tommy knockers and shit like that. But the dark half is, is it's pretty good. It's Romero. So, you know, I think it's Romero. I, I should, I do love that this, this whole movie is just a big, like nudge in the ribs to Stephen King. Yeah, no, I love that. I wonder how Stephen King feels about it. I'm sure he feels about it the way he feels about anything that is somehow related to him that he doesn't have total control over. Probably doesn't like it. That is true. The dark half came out in 93 came out after this movie. <laughs> Or it came out oh, a wow. year before this movie, actually. Oh, so um, maybe this is even more of a jab at it than we know. In the Mouth of Madness does feel very... It looks a lot like the movies that were coming... Like the the, the King movies that were coming out around this time. Like Thinner, uh, The Dark Half, Needful Things. Um, you know, those like 90s King adaptations. Which are pretty fucking hit and miss, if I'm being honest. I think most of them are actually misses. Yeah, there's there's a lot of misses. Stephen King, amazing writer. Not amazing at letting people handle his stuff after he's done with it. Yeah, I mean, you, you take it from a guy who hates the best adaptation of one of his novels. So, Which one is that? Uh, the Shining. You don't like The Shining? He hates The Shining. I love oh, it. He ha- oh, he hates The Shining. Okay. He hates I was Shining. like, yeah. Yeah, he does, and that's that's a pretty good example. But I mean, like once again, he he's a guy who seems to let other people just go hog wild with it, and then when someone else wants to do something slightly different, like he's like, no, no, I don't want that. Look at the Running Man. That's based off a King novel. I mean, it's not that's King, based but off a Richard Bachman novel. Thank yes, you. Yes, which King helped find and shepherd into the world and wrote introductions for it they're definitely different people i it's hate like, when he does the pseudonym crap <laughs> i love it i kind of love it because it's kind of like when i talk about el generico and someone's like oh you know Sami Zayn," <laughs> and i go no i know el generico no el generico he retired and went to mexico to raise the orphans that is a great ending to that character <laughs> it's very funny well the lights have come up and people said boy are we just the people in that theater at the end? Who knows? This seeing this on a big screen, I bet, would be cool sitting in the theater. Oh, that would be really cool. Also, another great movie for quarantine. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and I guess all we have to do is give this a rating. No shock for me. This is one of my favorite Carpenter movies. Um, if we ever did a Mount Rushmore, this would probably be on it. I'm going to give it five stars. I'm going to give this a solid four. 
I really enjoyed it. I think it's a little too quick. I think it deserves more room to breathe. I'd like to see what an extended cut of this looks like. I kind of would, too. I kind of love that it's quick. I love how punchy Carpenter can be. All of his stuff is pretty damn short, I feel like. This is, yeah. I mean, Prince of Darkness is the only one that I feel like kind of takes its time to its benefit. I love Prince of Darkness. Even it's still like what, like an hour 40. I don't think he has hour- a movie pushing close to two hours. Uh, everything think. looks... No, you're right. Everything's about an hour 40, hour 50. Yeah, because I think maybe his longest movie is like Escape from L.A., Jesus, is Escape from L.A. his longest movie? I, no, something, Christina's is longest at an hour. 50, oh, so. Christine, yeah. Right, another we, King adaptation. Whenever we get to an October Mount Rushmore, he's going to be the one, I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because he's got a lot of stuff on here. I'm going to have to watch Dark Star, which I should have brought up because that inspired Abandon to Right Aliens. I'm going to have to find Dark Star. It was on Shudder for a while. Damn it. Well... The lights have come up and people are like, in the mouth of madness, well covered, interesting movie. And they're looking at their little descriptions for next week and it just says, a gift for Ben, because it's our 52nd episode and Ben said, you know what, I want a gift. And the gift is Tyler seeing how well he knows me after a year of doing this. And he's going to pick two movies that he thinks Ben will enjoy. So now we find out if all the times I've picked things like Space Jam to mess with Tyler is about to come back and bite me in the ass. I'm definitely not going to pick anything I know that you won't like. I do think you're going to like both of these movies. They're interesting picks. So the first movie we talked about last week in our Martin Scorsese talk, I think, I do remember bringing it up because I remember struggling with the name. And that is 1970, The Honeymoon Killers. Okay. I wrote this down when you talked about it. Yeah, it seems like the type of movie that Ben would like because it's like kind of, it's like a cheap American indie, pretty dark, but it's also kind of fun. And then I had asked Ben earlier this week if he had seen this movie and he said no. So I'm very excited to show him the 1995 French movie La Haine. Okay, so The Honeymoon Killers from 1970 and La Haine from when? 1995. Two movies I have never seen, and we'll have to see if they meet the expectations of if they are something Ben would like. Oh, oh. I'm so excited to show you La Haine. I don't. I I can't believe you've never seen that before. <laughs> not to not to hype it up too much, but I really like that movie. Be careful, Tyler. For we may have something on the line next week. Well, guys, you can obviously follow us at TWGTFPod on Twitter. Find out all the stuff we're posting there. You can follow us at ET Critic or me at the ET Critic for the Empty Theater Critic on Twitter. You can check us out on all the social media places that you find podcasts. Give us a five-star review. Write something nice. Tyler, is there anything you want to plug? I mean, I'm floating in the vacuum the vacuum of space, so, so no. And for TWGTF, Two White Guys Talking Film, I've, of course, been your host, Ben. And I'm Sutter Kane. And remember, guys, if you're sitting in the front row of the auditorium and Sam Neill comes down and sits next to you and he just starts laughing at the movie, make sure it's a comedy, because if not, you're also in the mouth of madness. You know, or you could join in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Max Katie it up. Two White Guys Talking Film!